And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Almendorf. Joining me on the phone line today is Dr. Richard Vedder. He's an American economist, a historian, author, and columnist. He is Professor Emeritus of Economics at Ohio University and Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute. Dr. Vetter, it's an honor to have you on with us today. I'm delighted, Dan. You know, this past Wednesday, I believe it was, January the 4th, the American Spectator published an article that you wrote titled, When Putin Got Into Reaganomics, and that caught my eye. I thought it that's interesting. So I read it, and I liked it even more after I saw the title and I read it. So I thought maybe we could talk about this a little bit today. In the article, you describe um, Putin as Putin one and Putin two. I thought that was very interesting, um, parsing it out that way. So to get it started, can you explain a little bit about uh, this Putin one as you describe him in your article? Yeah, Putin one uh, uh, was the uh, Putin who was the uh, president of Russia for for the first eight years or so of of his. Uh, do I use the word reign? I guess to describe <laughs> the twenty three years of Putin's leadership of Russia. The two terms there, he was constitutionally uh, elected president. Uh, and in that period, he did a, a number of rather um, interesting things, uh, in, in, uh, in many ways beneficial things, for the Russian economy and uh, the Russian people. And as opposed to a period later on, let's say the last decade or so, which I call Putin too, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a period where Russia has had a, a different experience. It has not shown the same level of economic growth and change. His leadership style has changed. He has become less interested in democratic uh, principles and mm-hmm. uh, so forth, and I don't talk a lot about this in the article, but there's a lot of evidence that uh, he's uh, just out and out stolen. He and his uh, friends and yes. colleagues have out and out stolen a lot of the wealth and uh, that has been created by uh, Russia, and so there are these uh, sort of different periods. When Putin took office, the country was in bad shape. It was in bad shape because it sort of had botched the transition from communism to capitalism. A lot of the resources of the country, which the government had owned, uh, ended up in the hands of what are now called oligarchs, Mm -hmm. uh, somehow powerful people that emerged in the early 90s at the time of the change, actually started in the late 80s even, uh, under Gorbachev, but especially in the 90s under uh, Boris Yeltsin. And so these oligarchs had a large role in the change that uh, took place. The country was slow in converting to capitalist principles. Free markets were starting to develop to some extent, but only to a limited extent. Foreigners were hesitant to invest because they didn't. there was a lot of uncertainty. So the 90s were a period of disappointment, I guess you would say. Right. Uh, the big upsurge that some expected when the country abandoned communism simply didn't happen. 
by contrast, Putin, who took control literally at the very beginning of this century, if you define the century as beginning on January 1, 2000, mm-hmm. uh, Putin was an altogether different kind of guy. He came in and he very quickly adopted what I guess you might call libertarian or free market principles, championing markets, uh, downplaying the role of government, stressing uh, free enterprise and capitalist innovation and entrepreneurship, that sort of thing. And he came in, and I don't know that Putin, for a day of his life, really thought in these terms, mm-hmm. but he realized that something had to happen. The country uh, uh, had devalued the ruble, had had a financial crisis in 1998. As I say, it was poor. It was a country that in 2000 had half the population that it had had a decade earlier under Hmm. the old Soviet Union. The population had fallen by half. Most of it a little of it by natural decline in population mm-hmm. because birth rates had fallen so low. Oh, yeah. But most of it, most of it, from the disintegration of the old Soviet Union and the break off of other countries, most notably Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, but also, you know, many others Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Kazakhstan, we could go on and on. So here was a, a once proud country with aspirations of being a great power that was humiliated, was poor, didn't have enough money to, you know, put fuel in its tanks or airplanes or build new airplanes or submarines. And Putin uh, takes this over and he says he wants to restore Russia to its former glory. He was a patriotic leader like many, many Russian leaders of that kind, going all the way back to Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible, and so on, uh, not to mention Lenin and Stalin and others, who aspire to make Russia a big name in the world. Mm-hmm. And Russia has always sort of had an inferiority complex, <laughs> I guess you, you might say. You know, we're the poor country bumpkins from Eastern Europe who aren't sophisticated like the French or rich like the English and, you know, or the Germans. And so Russia has always had this inferiority complex. So Putin, though, brings in a conservative, uh, I don't know if the word conservative is the right word, uh, a very free market oriented economist, Russian economist named Andrei Ilyarnov, Ilyarnov, who is was and is a free market conservative type guy, <laughs> and rather extraordinary, but that's what happened. And Andre came in, and on the day that Putin was formally elected president, which was in March, he had uh, Alarnoffs bring in some economists from outside, from the West, to assess what was going on in Russia and how could they make things work better. And Arnoff, unlike other economists, was, uh, you know, very much a free market type guy. He was not interested in the conventional uh, teams of uh, experts from the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. These are the kinds that usually go in in these kind of situations. He could care less about those people. And they were there, by the way. I met all of them when I was over there. So anyway, he he picked out a small number of economists that he thought would be able to offer some really sound advice of how to move to a dynamic sort of free market oriented economy. That's neat. And 
Yeah, and I happen to be one of them. <laughs> and I, I got on the list because I had done some work, ironically, for the U.S. government, for the Congress of the United States, which showed that, using statistical techniques and all, that big governments and large governments tended to have less dynamic growth mm-hmm. and uh, less positive effects, and that, indeed, that we had really overextended government a bit in this uh, world that we live in, sure. and that high taxes, for example, that are needed to finance government uh, uh, tend to crowd out private activity, which is, tends to be more efficient, done better. Uh, in terms of increasing output and so forth, than to uh, governmental approaches. And there was another economist at the same committee of co- working for the same committee of Congress as, as I was, separate from me, named Jim Gortney from Florida State University, doing the same thing. And we both published reports, and we both came up with very similar results, <laughs> namely that, hey, government's grown a little bit too big in the world. We need government. We're not, we didn't say we ought to abolish government. Yeah, sure. or, uh, we didn't, uh, we're not up for anarchy or anything no. like that. But we just said we have overdone it a bit, <laughs> and that we, if we reduce the size of government by inference, uh, lower taxes and so forth, we will have a more dynamic economy. So that's what Jim Gordon argued. That's what I argued. And a very famous economist, more famous than either Jim or I, a name Al Harberger, Arnold Harberger, who uh, was a very well-known economist who had advised a lot of Latin American countries on the transition to capitalism and uh, was very important, a colleague of Milton Friedman's at the University of Chicago for many mm-hmm. years. Anyway, we all went, and one other young economist, to Russia at the uh, request of Mr. Larnoff, Putin, really, and we spent a week in Russia uh, looking at things, talking to people, meeting with people, uh, culminating in a meeting with Putin That's uh, himself. Yeah. So that's what we did. I'm, I'm probably going on too long here. The trouble, Dan, is that I'm an economist who's a professor, and that's a deadly combination. <laughs> and I will talk and talk and talk. You know, uh, <laughs> you have had some ministerial experience. Sometimes ministers tend to, uh, you know, go on a little too long <laughs> in their sermons, and us professors are the same way. Well, I think it's fascinating, and it's it's particularly interesting that you were invited over there by the Russian government as a noted economist, along with, I think it was like four others, and you advised them how to get out of their hole, if you will, their economic hole, and what was the effect? Did they act on your advice? To a considerable extent, yes. One thing we talked about, we didn't mention the number that the Russian government ultimately adopted. Mm -hmm. We said, you have taxes that are too high. And uh, there were some people, for every extra ruble in income they earned, they had to pay about 85 cents of it to the government in the form of taxes. So they got to keep very little. And so that provided very little incentive to work. And what it actually did is people engaged in illicit or illegal activity and not reported income. There's what we would call an underground economy going on. So we said, this is crazy. 
And everyone, you know, agreed with that. I, the U.S. ambassador told me that, and I mean, he was an apolitical kind of guy, a mm-hmm. foreign service officer type. And he says, you know, no one in Russia, in their right mind, pays all the taxes that they owe. Yes. So we said, so we, I, they need to reform the tax system. And I think uh, both Jim Gordon and I said, well, why don't you just put in a real simple, relatively low rate income tax? Yes. You know, instead of twenty percent or fifteen percent or something, and not these huge graduated tax rates, taxes which we even we in the U.S. have uh, at the federal level. Why don't you go to a simple tax? Uh, several smaller Eastern European countries that had been part of the old Soviet Union had done precisely that. Estonia, oh. for example, and so anyway, Russia. The the precedent had been set, but we encouraged this and we put a lot of emphasis on it in our remarks well you know lo and behold i come home from russia uh, not knowing you know i said well that was a fascinating visit i wonder what what'll happen <laughs> three, three or four months later i hear they have a 13 percent flat rate income interesting tax. and uh as uh, I, I do talk a lot to political politicians and so forth in my yeah. work as an economist, economist, and I say the only politician who ever paid a bit of attention to me was Vladimir Putin. <laughs> I, I can't get any American economist <laughs> politician. Sadly, to me. so. Uh, but I got Putin to listen to me. You know, so, I I really like the idea of of a uh, basically a lower flat tax. It makes so much sense, abundant sense, on many fronts. Let alone filling all these stupid forms out. It would be a whole lot simpler just on that alone. I suppose CPAs would have to find some some other work, but that's okay with me. Tell us how it works. How does a popular low flat rate income tax work? Well, it's so simple. Uh, how much did you make last year? You say, say you made a hundred thousand dollars. Since it's a round number, yeah. Send in fifteen percent of it, fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. It could be done on a postcard, uh, yes. theoretically. So you get rid of a lot of administrative costs. You get rid of a lot of gamesmanship, as you yes. say. We have sort of a a tax army in this country. It includes. All the IRS agents, of course, but it also includes hundreds of thousands of people uh, at uh, private firms that advise people on how to fill out your taxes and so forth, lawyers. I once estimated that the tax army in our country was larger than the U.S. Army. Oh, yeah. Uh, We have more people involved in figuring out how to pay our taxes than we do fighting our battles. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. And so it could work pretty well. It's interesting at the state level in the U.S., more and more states are moving in that direction. Uh, we have nine states that have no income tax, which is the sort of wow. the ultimate flat rate tax of zero. And how are they doing? They are doing extremely well <laughs> relative to the other states. Exactly. Two of them. Mentioned uh, three. Uh, there are nine of them all together. But the uh, Texas, Florida, Tennessee—all of them are booming. Nashville is booming. Austin, Texas, and Dallas, Texas are booming. Florida, the whole state is just growing like crazy. Uh, now, who are the states that have, say, taxes with over a ten yeah. percent rate? New York State, California. 
And what is happening there? People are, are moving out just by the thousands. Absolutely. So you, you see it in the migration statistics. You see it in U-Haul rental rates. Mm-hmm. I won't bore you with this, but I've looked at it. If you want to move from Austin, Texas to New York, it doesn't cost much money because no one wants to move to New York City. <laughs> That's true. So uh, they got lots of uh, U-Haul trucks that have come to Austin, and they got to get them back to New York so the New Yorkers can get a truck to go uh, the other way. That is so true. You pay twice as much to rent a U-Haul truck in New York as you do in Austin. But anyway, I could go on and on with those kind of stories. So there's a lot of reasons uh, why a flat tax is a good idea. And as I say, we're starting to get them here. Arizona just adopted one. Uh, Iowa adopted one. Mississippi adopted one. As I say, a number of states already have Mm -hmm. them. Indiana is a good example. Uh, Michigan uh, has one. Even Pennsylvania has a flat rate income tax. So we're at the state level. And uh, I think it's it's a good idea. I mean, is it a panacea? Will it solve all of the world's problems? Of course not. But is it a good idea? Sure. Yeah. Now, tell me just a little bit more. And today we're talking with Dr. Richard Vetter. We've got maybe just a few minutes left. Uh, what happened in Russia during this Putin one phase when they went with a flat tax? How did it affect them in their economy during that time? They did extremely well, and I I wouldn't put all of this on the flat tax or other things going on as well. They did a number of other things, but and the price of oil and gas and things like that are important in Russia because it's a very natural resource-oriented economy. But they had a rate of economic growth of over 7% a year for the first eight years of Putin. The 7% is a very high rate of growth. And by the way, this is in a society where the population is not growing at all. In fact, it's falling slightly because birth rates are very low there. And the death rates, unfortunately, are very high. Yeah. Uh, too much drinking, too much smoking. <laughs> the, it takes its toll, Russians, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. The habits of Russians are not the most healthy. <laughs> so you have this uh, 7% rate of growth, an extraordinary high. You know, 7% doubles in a decade. In other words, if you grow every year 7% a year in 10 years, you will have doubled your income. So that's the rate, roughly the rate of growth of Russia for uh, the first eight years. Wow. Putin. The last six or eight years, and things are muddled a little bit by the pandemic uh, of COVID effects, but if you look at the years right up to the COVID, the economy was growing a little bit over 1% a year. That's quite a contrast. Yeah, it's an extraordinary contrast. And and even Western Europe has had its problems, and some of them are similar to the Russian problems. The government has overly involved itself in the economy and so on. But even those economies are growing a little faster than Russia, maybe 2% a year, 1.5%, 2% a year, a little bit more than Russia. And then you get these newly freed 
former communist country like Poland yeah. or Estonia, which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. they're growing three or four percent a year <laughs> even now. So because they're catching up, you know, they're they've been freed from the oppression and the limits on entrepreneurship and human ingenuity that had existed under communism, and they're still coming out of that and benefiting from an increasing capitalist society, and they're, they're growing very rapidly. So the Poles are doing much better than the Russians, uh, wow. and Poland used to be the, the largest satellite country, as they called them in the old days, of Russia, even there were more than there were people living then in East Germany, for example. And so uh, that's what's happened. Well, I think this is fascinating, and I I thank you for taking your precious time and sharing with our listeners. In the last two minutes, um, do you have any advice for American leaders? If any of them happen to be listening, I doubt they are, but if they are, uh, how would you advise our American leaders given our situation today? Well, I think we can learn from the lessons of the past. We tend to, uh, we're, t- we're too present-day oriented today. We, we don't have enough respect for our own heritage yes. and our own past and our own history, which is a glorious history, it I is. might add, and an exceptional history. We have ignored the fruits of American exceptionalism. And I think we need to go back to those roots. And that's a very broad statement, but that's generally the direction I would move. You know, we can't do anything today. I mean, heck, we can't even choose a speaker speaker of the House of Representatives. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've noticed that. (laughs) And uh, that, that one, by the way, could be... Uh, a problem in, in, yeah. in the 18, 1850s it took uh, several months to solve that problem and <laughs> I hope we can do it in less so. time although there are some people who would argue the opposite they would say hey when Congress isn't moving we do much better than yeah this. you almost Boy, feel safer so, so, so maybe we're better off if we don't have a hey, to, <laughs> this is funny today we've been talking with Dr. Richard Vedder and he is an American economist, uh, historian, author, and columnist. And if somebody wants to look you up online, Dr. Vedder, how would they go about doing that? Well, I guess look up my name on uh, you know Wikipedia or something. Yeah. Uh, Richard Vedder, V-E-D-D-E-R. Uh, look under, uh, you know, just go into Google and type my name, and you'll come up. I have a... Uh, someone put up a Wikipedia page for me, which is not perfectly accurate, but it's <laughs> they a, never a are. But a, it's, yeah. a reasonable, a reasonable approximation of what I am. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, uh, Doctor Richard Vetter. Uh, God bless you. I I hope that you continue to be very productive here. Uh, you have a lot of wisdom to share with us in America as well as the world. So thank you for joining us. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The
beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The Of my life, and I. 